so, so Harry, you're you're at the SEC in Glasgow, and it's as we speak, it's the last few hours of COP26 officially. So yeah. I, what I, you, what's your impression on the, the last, well, these last 24 hours or 48 hours at COP? Yeah, well, I mean, you said you said it's the last few hours. I think, I mean, while the exhibition hall might be starting to pack up a little bit, the consensus at the conference is very much not over. I think it's been like it's been something like 15 years since the last conference ended on time. So uh, uh, it's very likely this will negotiations will roll over to tomorrow, probably even into Sunday at this rate. I mean, there's still a lot of a lot of square brackets in the text um, surrounding Article 6 and mm. the draft text we saw released this morning. Again, there's a lot of things to to resolve, mainly around sort of climate finance. But I think the UK does seem to be quite far away from its sort of metrics of, of success for this COP within the um, within the draft texts. Mm. Do we the, think um, that the, the metrics of success for the UK particularly matters? It's mostly for media who want to knock the British government no matter what. So, so it is, it's quite irrelevant. I mean, uh, you know, we are surging yeah. non-stop, full speed ahead towards a, an era of renewables dominance, the like of which, you know, we've never seen. And a rapid change is going gonna, is, is gonna to undermine all the fossil fuel. If you believe that that's utterly inevitable because of the current economics, then you kind of start wondering... What's all this political shenanigans about? It does really bear the question. Um, and I think it's uh, a lot of the sort of targets and promises here will just be simply smashed past by sort of innovation and private finance. Um, I mean, we've seen that within the renewable sector already. We've seen solar power absolutely steam past what governments, the targets governments have set for it. So I think when, in, in that sense, uh, yes, I don't think the the UK's organisation success of COP26 should really be considered that important. I think where it is important is the sort of direction of global funds towards um, emerging markets, so places like India, and making sure that there is adequate finance for these countries to to shut down their but when their you come to but when you look at where emissions are coming from, the two or three uh, biggest countries, you know, China, America and India, and where, whereas China and India are growing and, and the, the America is sort of shrinking somewhat or staying still. So, I mean, those are the those are the things that need to be attacked in the next three to four or five years more than Africa. Or, or any individual country in Africa or the or Latin America, because they're much smaller contributors to the greenhouse gases. Now, it's true that what the last thing we want to do is have a huge surge in African population based on a, a, an industrialising society built around coal. That's true. We don't want that to start and then build momentum. And certainly that we do need to give poorer countries um, some guidance or money or if not money, then some kind of financial apparatus so that they can embrace renewables just as easily as they embrace fossil fuels. And and, and um, as a result, they're not penalised for choosing renewables. That, that, you know, that needs to be done. And these agreements, getting $100 billion is, is it should be enough. And I don't know why we haven't actually got them $100 billion. Yeah, I mean, I think the the hundred billion target they're they're set to to sort of um, reconsider that and think what target they can put in place for twenty twenty five now. I think you're right. I think the um, it is all about allocating funds to these countries and making sure that they can sort of implement a renewables platform. But 
to be honest, by the time that their development's in sort of a full full steam ahead phase, renewables will be the the obvious choice. So renewables plus battery over sort of coal and gas. So I think it it really should be more of a. Um, I, I wrote to someone on the Financial Times who got a reply yesterday. He wrote a piece about uh, nuclear and how she'd been prejudiced about nuclear and now she wasn't anymore. And I said, you don't have to be prejudiced against nuclear. It costs too much. You know, it's just it, it, you can't keep installing it. And if you start a project today that will take 10 years to build during its lifetime, it will become obsolete during the build. It'll become obsolete. And it's the same now for every other technology out there, including coal and gas around renewables. And especially in hot countries where solar energy is. I mean, if you take somewhere like Nigeria, I mean, it's it's a, it's a, a strong oil producer. And it's a big, I think we've got a, if we haven't got a country focused, we'll be doing one. It's a no brainer that they should be using uh, solar. And if they don't know that now, in the five years it takes to build a new oil refinery or a new coal mine, it will be even more obvious by then. And really, people don't necessarily need more money. If they're finding money to spend on coal mines or coal plants, they should be able to find money to spend it on solar. And at some point, it should be obvious to them it's going to cost them less. Yeah, I mean, we know the future technologies are going to be zero emission, right? And I think it's the, the focus really should be on getting rid of the emissions that we have now um, and I think that's why things like coal phase outs gas phase outs are so important I think the biggest disappointment for me really was at this um, beyond oil and gas press conference that I think Andrew's covered that the UK didn't uh, didn't join that and didn't actually committing to putting a, a firm end date on oil and gas in the future yeah I also think the fact that there's in this in this draft text that they released this morning they've really changed the language from saying stop coal and stop all fossil fuel financing to stop unabated coal and stop inefficient fossil fuel funding. So it, it, it's very much leaving these sort of little conduits that people can use to sort of get around uh, the rules in countries where they're already pumping out emissions from coal, oil and gas. I mean, uh, the UK can't put um, a, a deadline on, on getting out of gas because it's so dependent on it for home heat. And it's, you know, it's just massively dependent. And if you do a survey of what's written in the media, mostly um, the idea that heat pumps are good enough to heat a home is ridiculed and laughed at by an undercurrent of people criticising throughout the media. So the, the idea of pushing a strategy of heat pumps is one that worries politicians. Now, the fact that most of those articles are written by planted fossil fuel loving climate change denying individuals and they're full of lies doesn't really it shouldn't really make a difference if people should know someone who's got uh, a heat pump in their home think oh i could afford that and then and then actually go out and want one but that's just not taking off in this country and there is this whole idea that we can somehow convert the gas mains to hydrogen but we won't be able to, the economics won't work for that for 10 years. Hence, that I don't want to put a time frame on this. I don't want to put a time frame on it because I, I want to make a different decision. And if you get someone like BP injecting ideas into the government's head, it'll be saying, oh, you want hydrogen for that. And, and yeah, it'll be there. Just, just put it off for 10 years. Well, that's two different governments. So not this government, not the one after, but the one after that will be able to give you a time frame for getting out of gas. 
I mean, I think the UK is particularly interesting. I think it's got this it's got this strategic decision for when what it's going to do with the future of its heating in 2026. And I think the UK is quite uniquely positioned in the fact that it doesn't necessarily make one sense more sense than the other to go hydrogen or to go to heat pumps. So I think there is quite a lot of I wouldn't say confusion, but uncertainty in which which route they'll follow. I think in reality, it'll probably be a combination of both. See, our experience in following technologies which change rapidly is that you know, markets can install from zero to 50% market penetration in 10 years. If you're talking about a consumer electronics market, even faster than that, from uh, iPhone to everyone's got a smartphone, uh, Android or, or Apple iPhone, is, it was under 10 years. Uh, Consumer-driven decisions can happen really fast once it's clear and obvious what you buy and once there's an economic advantage to making that choice and that's that's the problem uh, countries that are addicted to gas have they've spent all this money on gas mains harry i i was reading in the new edition of rethink energy about the green hydrogen catapult coalition that's emerged from cop 26 well t- tell us more about that yeah, so so I mean that was um it was actually the end of last week that the okay. the group came together and, and announced this um announced this sort of up target. So basically what they were saying when they launched, I think it was about a year ago now, was that they wanted twenty five gigawatts of capacity by twenty twenty six, twenty twenty seven um of electrolyzers worldwide. Now they're aiming for forty five gigawatts, and that's just within the catapult itself. And that's, um, so that's a two hundred and twenty five fold increase in capacity if if everything went yeah, to plan. But, yeah, for electrolyzers. On, yeah, for I mean, electrolyzers based on based demand, on the capacity yeah. we've got now, and that's what and that's something that we've seen um, as sort of a key and is a really good way. And I think Peter's written about this quite a lot in the past. Is that it's a good way of forecasting cost reduction because you can look at every time the capacity doubles, generally the percent of the the cost falls by a sort of similar percent. And, and within hydrogen, we've seen sort of something like around twenty three percent. I think wind is something. It's still it's above ten percent wind. I think it might be twelve. We we um, could reveal that your uh, model in your upcoming hydrogen report shows that percentage not to be the ten percent that you you said in this article is required, but it's closer to fourteen percent. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's exactly what we're saying. So for hydrogen to reach cost parity by 2026 with grey hydrogen, we'll need it to, to follow a learning rate of um, around ten percent. If only this 45 gigawatts, so this is only if the green hydrogen catapult, if they imagine they're the only people installing electrolyzers and they reach this 45 gigawatt target, which they will. I mean, it's, Andrew Forrest is by far the most important man in the hydrogen sector at the moment, and he's very much driving to have these projects online by then. If you've got this 45 gigawatts, then that's enough capacity to bring the cost down if the learning rate stays at 10%. And what we're saying is that if it's around 15%, which we believe is more likely to be the case due to sort of the uh, how easy it is to commodify electrolysis compared to sort of solar panels compared to wind uh, wind power technology that actually the cost parity will be sort of around 2025 2024 what was really disappointing actually uh, for me uh, yesterday was i went to a hydrogen uh, innovation summit which is just around the corner from cop 26 and there's still people just talking about 2030 as the deadline and and the people who are saying this are ceos of companies that might have hydrogen in their supply chain in sort of te- uh, at some point in the future as they look to decarbonize. So they're not the people developing the technology, they're just the ones who feel like they should have some interest in the technology. So they're not up to date on when it's going to be cost competitive and, and 2030 for them is just a way of sort of kicking down. I, kicking I've never seen someone arrive five years late for a party and be the life and soul of it. 
Um, exactly. You know, th these people are, uh, if they're not monitoring hydrogen, I mean, uh, we keep reading articles, especially American articles saying, oh, hydrogen's actually going to shrink as a market, not grow. And then you read stuff like this, where it's 225% two, um, you know, uh, increase. And as you pointed out in this article, the actual global pipeline for hydrogen is at 250 gigawatts. Yeah, so I, I mean, there's no argument that the cost of um, green hydrogen is going to go down. And I think I, I, I want to call out, actually, there's, uh, I think it's, I'm not sure if he's CEO, but Andrew Jones from D uh, Dow um, was speaking at this hydrogen summit and continuously pushing for blue hydrogen on the on the on the premise that green hydrogen won't be there at scale and it won't be cheap enough uh, as quickly as blue hydrogen, even, the even though the blue hydrogen doesn't exist at the moment. So that's something that has to start from scratch as well. Um, I just think it was it was actually quite embarrassing to watch people like that stand up in front of a room full of hydrogen experts and talk about blue hydrogen. And then, I mean, the talk afterwards, you had some actual experts on the matter. I think Chris Chris Goodall was one of them. Yeah, it just absolutely. But the fact that these there's this misinformation still surrounding the hydrogen industry is incredibly frustrating. And I think it just highlights the need for for services like ours. Um, do, I know. Do, do people listen politely or do they argue or tut or what what happens? The thing is, Simon, what, what happens in these large organisations is the boss has got a lifetime of his industry not changing. And he's the most experienced man in the company. Yeah. But the 25 year old engineers are going, oh, yeah, maybe the boss knows best. But it seems to me that it's going to happen a lot faster than that. But every time they talk upstairs and push the ideas upstairs they get their head chewed off and it, it becomes one of these things where there's only seven people left in the whole industry but they're the ceos of the seven largest companies uh, who, who think that and then suddenly they're swept aside they retire new guys pills of shoes and and there is no dissenting voice anymore yeah i think the other thing as well is that and you can see this around the conferences is that people are afraid because these conferences aren't dominated by by journalists they're dominated by people in up and down the supply chain so people are they're genuinely quite afraid to to upset the ceos of these big companies so they're not going to go out on a limb and and criticize them in public and embarrass them on, on when they're stood on stage but so no one's calling out people for being pro pro natural gas or pro necessarily sometimes pro coal and certainly not blue hydrogen but when you get someone up on the stage who is talking about why blue hydrogen isn't um, the solution or why, and why green hydrogen is, these are the people that um, uh, receive sort of rounds of applause mid-speech. So right. I think that's how you can tell which way the industry is really shifting. The message from this podcast should be if you, if you need to understand the, how rapidly hydrogen as an industry will roll out, you need the report that... Harry is completing this month and that will be available next month. And it should be able to tell you how quickly your company is going to disintegrate if you don't follow the guidelines in that in that report. Quite true. So and what's the what's the best part of what, what what are the good parts of COP uh, so far? Because when I was writing about that Denmark Costa Rica thing and how they're trying to kill gas and oil, and then it turns out they're not even requiring what the associate members to completely get rid of it and and the countries that joined on the day were 0.5 percent of global production i felt a bit annoyed but is it is it the methane and the hydrogen that's good <laughs> well the best things to come out of it or oh, um i think 
it's it's a bit of a cop out answer, um, if you pardon the pun. Um, but you, it's I think it's the general drive. Like it does definitely feel like um, there is a consensus across the board that that issues need to be addressed. I don't think there's people there's not um, a sense of climate denial here like there has been uh, at cops in the past. Um, and I think that the statements from Denmark and Costa Rica were were positive in sort of starting that change. So, I mean, they're the first to say that, yeah, you will be, there will be an actual end date to oil and gas. But yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Andrews. I think the fact that the associate members, and I think what struck me from the announcement was how determined they were to make it sound like a good thing and to uh, to, to boost the number of member states. I mean, they've they've got Denmark in there. They've also got Greenland in there, which is pretty much Denmark anyway. So that's just, a, you can count that as one. They've put um and they put Wales in there, uh, they put California in there. So it's not these aren't countries; these are sort of smaller, smaller sections. And um, yeah, it's. But if it, you if you need a club to say let's end um, gas and oil, that first you've got to start the club, and you can't you yes. can't start the club with Norway, which is you know financially dependent upon it. But if its neighbour Denmark set joins the club. And then, then Norway might at some point join it. And if a, a customer like Italy and France say, all right, we, we hardly produce any oil or gas, but we use a lot of it and, and we're going to phase it out, then, then suddenly their suppliers start saying, oh, that might reset our agenda or change the clock on our agenda. So I, I think if, yeah, if you need to, first you need to start the club, then you need to grow the club. Yeah, and I think what investors need to realise is that while the club's got 11 members at the moment, in two or three COPs' time, it will have big countries as part of it. It's the same same thing as we've seen with coal. We saw Poland sign up to the the, um, the coal alliance, which we never thought we'd see. Wow. Um, so yeah. it, it is all about sort of this incremental change, but it doesn't... I mean, these promises aren't necessarily f- reflected in action. Um, it's just sort of investment signals. Um, so uh, I think... It's very difficult to determine what good has come out of COP26 until we see the money being spent and seeing how easily that money is directed towards renewables projects, developed towards emerging markets um, and um, directed towards climate adaptation. So, I mean, at the moment, yeah, it it can all be uh, considered a little bit of lip service, but I think, yeah, it will be the proof in the pudding in terms of how the money is actually spent. Let's let's just change pace a little bit. I I mean, Andres did a sum up of um, what's in the um biden administration the the infrastructure bill right infrastructure bill which is a 1.2 trillion dollar bill if you read about it in this morning's papers there are issues that some money in there is set aside for um for carbon capture and Mm. sequestration so that's kind of quite worrying that um the fossil fuel industry might waste all this money chasing uh, an impossible dream but that's only about 65 billion of it that you know there's still an awful lot that is going into renewables Andrews well it's certainly there's there's some clear uh, money uh, uh, allocated to EVs uh, 20 22 billion for that between the EV charging stations the buses the battery manufacturing which I think is particularly interesting yeah but I mean like you said and actually like I said in the article you look at the the big item for renewables and it's um, power transmission infrastructure, resiliency. Again, it, it's quite vague and I, I'm afraid to, I'm sorry to admit that I haven't read the full six, uh, 2000 page bill, but uh, 
<laughs> we no, can no, forgive you. Weekend, They'll forgive you. Yeah, 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 over the weekends, yeah. Yeah, it, it has like, it's got nuclear, it's got carbon capture and storage, it's got clean hydrogen rather than green hydrogen. So even though it's it's totally gigantic, uh, and, and then you have, you know, there's so many different ways it can get split off. I mean, there's a lot of infrastructure that isn't really directly related to the infra, to the energy transition, uh, like broadband internet, for example, that's a big one, or bridges. And then you've got the sort of, you, know, you could say the fake clean spending with, with the CCUS. And then, of course, a lot of it is just social uh, programs anyway. So it's it, I think it's actually, despite its huge scale, it's kind of a, it's not actually that transformative. It's more, it's like more of the same. Uh, and I, I think, I think the, it all depends how that money is spent. I mean, if hmm. that money is spent to encourage other investment, then, then it will leverage three times that amount of money. Uh, you know, when you when you try and spend money on CCUS, you're not doing it on implementation. You do it on pilots because until you have a successful pilot that is economically viable, you can't do a rollout. So CCUS can't absorb that much money because the oil companies know it's not going to work. So they're not going to waste the government's money proving that it doesn't work. They're, they'll they'll sniff around it, but I, I I doubt very much whether much will come out from that. Now nuclear, yeah, making uh, accelerating um, SMR nuclear uh, using that to generate hydrogen. Well, that might be inefficient. It might not really work economically, but you'll have more hydrogen. So, so it, it'll it'll add fuel to the hydrogen fire uh, anyway. So uh, and also who's who's controlling the government during this spending time? Someone's got to sign off all these projects. That's where your left wing right wing bias starts to show itself in the actual implementation of you get the money you don't, and that's not that's done quietly behind closed doors. So I I trust the Biden administration to spend wisely uh, when it's when it's um, or put someone in charge who's who's got the right sympathies for um, and, and and some of this money really is about uh, if you've lived in America and you've dri- driven over one of the bridges in and around New York they're all ancient and they're they're all in need of repair and they, people they've just been too tight so they will make jobs it will make jobs for work that does need to be done and it, that will help them recover their economy from uh, from the pandemic. And uh, and Therese, Inner Mongolia is the new home of polysilicon. Yeah, Discuss. I, I, I actually, thinking back on the three articles I wrote, I actually got a bit annoyed because I, I wrote about the Denmark-Costa Rica thing where it's a load of countries that don't produce oil and gas promising to not produce oil and gas. I wrote about, um, what else did I write about? The, the lesser spending bill, where it's a huge amount of money, but we don't really know how much of it's going to be that relevant for the energy transition outside of the EVs. And then I wrote about this and it's like, uh, it's just the same old. I've kind of co- covered it before. But it's like we, we sanctioned the polysilicon from Xinjiang. So now they're just going to make it from the next province yeah. along. And so it's co- just kind of annoying. Yeah. And also I mentioned in the article that well, I say we, but it's actually the Americans. You know, the, the Americans uh, put import customs duties on Chinese solar modules, not exclusionary levels, just uh, 18%, I think it is. So then the Chinese start making them, like cycling them through the Indo-Chinese countries, Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand, uh, uh, just for a bit of processing. Mm. So a bunch of American solar manufacturers complain and they say, well, uh, 
these are basically Chinese and they should be subject to the tariff. And then that got struck down. So it's just like, you know, we sanction it. So they put it in the next province and we tariff it. So they just cycle it through Indochina a bit. It, it's kind of silly. But I, there is a lot. Of it. I, I think um, Inner Mongolia is a very interesting place and it kind of deserves to be talked about in the same way that Texas and California deserves to be talked about because it's it's uh, got 24 million people but I think it's going to install 10 gigawatts of solar power so it's a larger solar market than Japan it's almost as large as India despite being 24 million people and um, and uh, really so on you know. I, one of the interesting things I thought about your article is that it takes a colossal amount of coal-powered heat to to produce the polysilicon I actually can't I remember that? if it's heat yeah. or if it's just electricity now and the mm. processes. But it, it, yes, it, it's a very in- energy intensive process. And mm. that's why the whole industry's ended up migrating to these uh, Chinese provinces with low fuel costs. I mean, the other big Chinese province, aside from Xinjiang and Inner Mongolia, is Sichuan because they have all the hydropower there. So it, it, it's very cheap sometimes. Mm. In fact, I, these are the same provinces where you had a lot of Bitcoin mining going on before it got banned. Oh, right. Harry, China famously didn't turn up to COP26. So what what do you think for for future COPs or has China's presence been missed or? China's presence definitely has been missed. Um, I think it's created a sense of just global friction um, more than anything. And I think at the start of the conference, there was a lot of name calling by China and the US at each other, um, Mm. as is pretty common in geopolitics but we saw two days ago there was a sort of surprise announcement that the two were going to really sort of team up um in terms of climate change so i think in terms of cop 27 uh, i would be surprised if china wasn't there now now that that's been signed i think um i think that i mean you go back to saying what was the most positive thing um you could you could see from cop 26 i think that's this is almost one of them um i think there was something part of it was that the US isn't going to probe into Chinese solar manufacturers anymore. Um, and I think and just generally, I think the fact that the US and China were going to be more collaborative um, will really help spread the technologies that we need across the world in terms of decarbonisation. Obviously, there's nothing concrete that's come out of that statement yet, but it's definitely a positive. Um, and I think China has been from the impression of what I've been getting from delegates um, sort of around the conference, China hasn't been as obstructive as they were, many feared they would be. Uh, I mean, someone is currently trying to take out a whole section of the current draft text um, around mitigation, but we're not sure if that's China. I'd be surprised. I'd almost be surprised if it was now. But yeah, generally, I think China they were missed at the start, um, but I think the consensus is that they haven't necessarily been their, their direct presence here well through uh, Xi Jinping is that is wasn't that necessary um, and I think that the, their delegates have actually been quite constructive in the talks. I think China will turn up when it's got something to say I mean at the moment it's big it's big statement was um, going um, uh, zero emissions by 2060 and that happened last January mm. and, and, and that's that was that was a huge statement because if it does turn the corner um, and stop growing its emissions 2030, um, and, and we think it, it will it will do that four or five years early, then then the big panic is is moves from China to India, and and China is of course um, and America between them believe they can influence India. When that starts to turn the corner, 
we'll be at a point where renewables, I mean, just going back to this article, 550 tonnes of polysilicon by 2025 from one place, 400,000 tonnes from another place to a couple of other 100. There's, there's over a million tonnes going to be added by 2025 of polysilicon. How much solar panels does that imply? Nobody has forecast those numbers. We're, we're going to do them in our in Andres's next forecast, but how many can you make from that, Andres? And is it mind-bogglingly larger than A, everything that's been installed up till now, and B, every bit of electricity we need. Once we start overbuilding, that is supplying, build, build, putting two solar panels in for every uh, solar panel we need, we, we'll start having a massive uh, uh, price war between solar panel owners and, and suddenly coal and gas get obliterated in, 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 that, in that price war. Uh, and that's, it looks like we're already building for it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing with um, the polysilicon shortage at, at the present time is just that the, the factories take a little bit longer to build than the rest of the supply chain. So the rest of the supply chain grew and now polysilicon is catching up and maybe it's going to catch up uh, far too much and, and they'll go bankrupt and, and there'll be so much polysilicon that it's almost worthless or, or whatever. Because, um, yeah, like you say, uh, this you don't commit to, to a polysilicon factory without customers. Hmm. You, you line up the customers and the, as you line up the finance, as you as you plan the building and everybody here it, it believes that they can sell all this polysilicon. Otherwise, they wouldn't be building it. Everybody thinks that, um, you know, 200 gigawatts a year is going to be commonplace in three or four years. Maybe it's 600. Maybe maybe it's 700. Maybe it's three to four times larger than we think. That's what they think. Otherwise, they wouldn't be building these factories. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, back when I did the perovskite forecast, which I think was a year ago now, I yeah. expected about 400 gigawatts to be deployed annually by 2030, or maybe it was 450 gigawatts. And uh, that you can still just bring that up by looking at last year's uh, solar deployments, which I think I, I, I believe were 146 gigawatts. If you just increase that by 15% each year, you end up at 590 gigawatts in 2030. Um, although you, know, you can look at it in a more detailed way than that. And um, this article was triggered by me seeing Inner Mongolia promising polysilicon production capacity of between 210,000 tonnes and 550,000 tonnes by 2025. So that's 70 gigawatts to uh, like 190 gigawatts of, of solar. Because basically, uh, it's it's three grams of polysilicon to one watt. So so anyway, so 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 this other number that I saw a while back, which I think is pretty reasonable considering all these huge factories you see, of 1.8 million tons, which is probably a 2030 figure. I would assume that would be 600 gigawatts of solar if it's running at full capacity, which is it's never going to be. I think it will usually whatever usually is run at two thirds capacity. So that gives you it gives you 400 gigawatts. And then you can just add in the um, the, the stuff like First Solar and the perovskites that's um, that's not that will be developed by then. I mean, you know, that, we, that's we, not silicon. So it, you exactly, can exactly. So we are being told that it takes six or seven years to establish those supply lines and to build out that technology properly and fully, and make it competitive. Fine, but that will be there by 2030, and and that will add another 30, 40 percent to the numbers you've just said. Yeah. 